page 980, Matthew 14, verses 1 to 12, starting to read at verse 1. At that time, Herod, the Tetrarch, heard the reports about Jesus. And he said to his attendants, This is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Now Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people, because they considered John a prophet. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for the guests and pleased Herod so much that he promised, with an oath, to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here, on a dish, the head of John the Baptist. The king was distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted. And had John beheaded, in the prison. His head was brought in on a dish and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus. I'll start with a prayer. Heavenly Father, through weak human words, give us the grace to hear your true and living word. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. This is the first time I've preached at a morning service, and those who are familiar with my preaching style will know instantly that I usually take a very different slant on a passage and probably get you to think about this passage in a completely different way than you've ever thought before. And this, this passage, logically, when you look at it, uh, would be, uh, often I've heard it preached about people saying that Herod has bowed to peer pressure, and he has uh, promised something that was uh, foolish and not wise at all, uh, and it's resulted in him killing one of the leading religious figures um, in the New Testament. However, I do not think that's fully really why Matthew has included this story. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke include this story in their texts, but I don't think that's why they have included it. Um, and in many respects, I do not think you can look at this passage without the feeding of 5,000. That's what's going to happen next. And it starts the feeding of the 5,000. And you will see how the two link and I will try and bring them together. So, first of all, though, what I wanted to put up here is 
I've always been confused about the Herods in the Bible. And I thought, what we need is the ultimate guide to biblical Herods. And so I've put a little chart up. As soon as Helen saw it, she thought, this looks like a lecture. But I do think we need that picture to understand this. So we all are familiar with Herod the Great. Herod the Great is the Herod King when Jesus uh, is born in Bethlehem. He's been appointed king by Mark Antony. So another big historical figure in the background there. He's been appointed king by Mark Antony. And he rules for about 70 years, has 10 wives. That is a complicated life. And you can see why things are going to get complicated as he has children. And 14 children. We're interested today in Herod Antipas, uh, Herod Philip, and just in a passing way, Herod Archelaus. And then, just in case you're wondering, Herod Agrippa, who kills St. James, he's on the left, another branch of this family, but his sister just happens to be Herodias, who is the female in this uh, story we've just had. So Herod the Great splits his kingdom into, uh, he wants Herod Ocellus to be his uh, successor, Uh, but... Just at the end of his life, Herod the Great went insane, and Herod Antipas contested his will and tried to get the kingship into his hands instead of going to Archelaus's. But Caesar Augustus ruled for Archelaus. He became the ruler, and he got deposed in about um, 6 AD. Um, And Pontius Pilate then was made procurator of that area. So that links with how Pontius Pilate comes into the story later on. Herod Antipas goes to visit his brother Philip, who's got the wife Herodias. And somehow, we do not know how the story went, he comes away with Herodias as his wife, having divorced Aratus, his earlier wife. So Herod Antipas has got rid of his earlier wife, who was the daughter of the king of Nabatea. And so this is what the story is referring to. Herod Antipas has married Herod Philip's uh, wife, and um, John the Baptist is saying this is not legal. He's quoting Leviticus 20, uh, chapter 20, verse 21. I can see straight away. I put in shading that uh, Herod Philip is slightly shaded. It's because his father, his mother, is a different mother from Herod Antipas. And I am sure that was probably how Herod Antipas is justifying his marriage. But John the Baptist is saying it's not legal. And he is quoting Leviticus 20, verse 21. So this is what's happening. And this is the state of play. Um, In the end, for Herod Antipas, his divorce of Aratas is going to cost him his kingdom and his kingdom collapses for the divorce. So the Jews did think he got divine retribution for that. So that's what's happening, and that's how this story fits in. Now, for most of you here, I imagine most of us are evangelicals in this church, you should already be starting to think a lot of alarm bells ringing. I'm telling you a lot of details that are not in the Bible. And this is one of the fantastic things about this passage. There is quite a lot of other material confirming what this passage says. And that means we're hearing the true situation. This is what was happening. And so if you ever coming into the church thinking, you can't trust the Bible, uh, it's such an old story, it's been twisted with time. Well, I'm afraid here for you, 
you've got to question that. There's a lot of evidence. This is what happened. Herod Antipas did marry Herodias, and it cost him his kingdom. And John the Baptist is quoted by Josephus as being the figure, and he was beheaded as a result. This is the true story. This is not made-up tales uh, that we are hearing here. These are true stories. This actually happened. And I think that's a really, really important point that we remember. We are dealing with truth here. So, two key passages here with this story. And the first one I want to start off with is it's verses 1 and 2. It is clear from what Herod is saying at the start. This is a flashback. It's told in a very unusual way. We have jumped to the future. Herod is saying something, and then we're coming back to, this is what's just happened. John the Baptist has just been killed, and Herod is starting to see Jesus in his uh, radar, his sights. So something really important has happened, that suddenly Herod has become aware of Jesus. But we can tell by what he is saying, he hasn't a clue who Jesus is. Because he thinks it's John the Baptist brought back from the dead. Well, they're the same age. It would seem really unusual if John the Baptist had uh, come back from the dead. So we have a confusing story here that Herod doesn't seem to know who Jesus was. Well, if we look at the timeline where we are, we're two and a half years into Jesus' ministry. How can Herod not know who Jesus is? And that was quite a hard question initially to answer until you start to look at how Jesus is doing his ministry. I think there's a map. Good. The map of Israel, if you follow what Jesus actually does, we can see how Jesus conducts his ministry. If you were to read the accounts of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you would find that Jesus only goes to Jerusalem right at the end, the fourth Passover of his ministry. No other visit to Jerusalem is mentioned. Strange. They don't mention it. Look at John, and we find that Jesus is visiting Jerusalem. He visits every religious festival he can, usually the Passover. So what is happening is that Jesus does visit Jerusalem, and we have this situation that Herod isn't actually seeing Jesus do uh, any of these acts he's doing in Galilee, even though he is the tetrarch of Perea and Galilee. I think you can see Perea just on that map and Galilee. Now, if you just see to the left, as you're looking at that, Machaerus, that's where uh, Herod Antipas' palace is, and that's where John the Baptist is thought to have been beheaded, uh, right near Jerusalem on the other side of the Dead Sea. But Herod is staying mainly in the south, in the Perea area. And what is happening is Jesus visits Jerusalem occasionally, usually on Passovers. So if you read John's account, and most people would say that John's account of the Gospels is the most chronological, we see that Jesus visits the first Passover of his ministry. Jesus visits Jerusalem, and he turns over the tables um, and uh, he uh, performs the miracles and he visits Nicodemus at that time and then he leaves and goes back something else is very interesting his disciples are not mentioned in the stories in Jerusalem they're mentioned in the Judean countryside but they're not mentioned when he goes to 
Jerusalem, which is interesting. John the Baptist probably gets arrested at this point, just after Jesus visits for the first time and clears the temple. So John the Baptist gets arrested, he'll be in prison for two years, and then he'll be beheaded. So uh, King Herod does wait quite a long time before he actually kills John the Baptist. Passover number two. Not certain, most um, commentators on the Bible believe Jesus was present at the Passover, but you'll all remember the story of the uh, Pool of Bethesda, where a man is healed at the Pool of Bethesda. So there's a next time. Again, the disciples are not mentioned as being with Jesus at that time. They may have been, uh, a negative can't be proved, but they're not mentioned. So it doesn't seem surprising that Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't mention this in their Gospels. And this brings us now to the present time, the third Passover. And this is where John the Baptist gets killed just before the Passover, and then we're going to have the feeding of the 5,000. And something has just happened around this point. Suddenly, Jesus is on Herod's radar, and I've used Sauron's eye for his radar. Herod has suddenly realized this Jesus character is a big deal, and he's going to start watching him. He's become nervous of Jesus because he seems to command some authority, and he's a little bit worried, perhaps spooked, by this idea John the Baptist has come back from the dead. Um, So he's starting to get nervous. Um, So Jesus spent, it seems like, quite a little time in Jerusalem compared with Galilee, and most of his ministry, and certainly in the first two to two and a half years, was actually restricted to the Galilee area. And it looks like Jesus would go to uh, Jerusalem and uh, carry out miracles, preach, and then come away again. And we're not sure about the periods, but it does tell us that he did visit Jerusalem. So there's my, my slide. He's now on Herod's radar, and this is really what this passage is about. Herod has suddenly noticed this Jesus character, and he's starting to get concerned about him. And what has just happened, almost certainly, is the feeding of the 5,000. And this is uh, John's uh, concern, really. Oh, sorry, Herod's concern really is coming from uh, the Matthew uh, verse 5 in this, uh, cha- uh, this chapter is that Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered John a prophet. Herod was afraid of John. He was afraid that the people may revolt if he was to kill John, which is why he was really reluctant to kill him, kept him for two years, and now suddenly, due to some foolishness, he's ended up killing John the Baptist And now he could be in serious trouble. Although, in the end, it proves to be his blind spot. He didn't see his divorce of Aretas causes his kingdom to collapse in the end. So, the Jewish people are looking for a religious leader. I'll stay with the map there. Beyond the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians. And today, they've had John the Baptist. And they seem to be asking him in the Bible quite a few times, are you the Messiah? Are you the Messiah? And uh, we have some of what John said in the, uh, the accounts in the, the Gospels. Now, if you look in the Bible, you would actually start to feel that John the Baptist is, is a minor figure in many respects. 
but that's far, far from the truth. If you read the works of Josephus, you'll find out John the Baptist had an immense following. And this is what was starting to worry Herod about this character, John the Baptist. He could tell the people what to do. And in Josephus' Antiquities, it says that Herod was worried that if John the Baptist said revolt against Herod, that the people would do it and revolt. And Josephus says that's one of the reasons why John the Baptist was put in prison in the first place. So now he's just killed John the Baptist. What are the people going to do? And this brings us to what's happening here, and it's setting the scene. At the start of the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus, when he sees the crowd for the first time, he says they were like sheep without a shepherd. They are lost. They have no leader. And they have. They've just lost John the Baptist. He was a major, major figure. And suddenly, he has been killed. Jesus also just sent out the 12 disciples into neighboring areas, and that must have generated a massive amount of interest in his ministry. So people are starting to flood towards Capernaum. They've lost one of their major uh, religious figures. And it looks to me, with the feeding of the 5,000, they're transferring their allegiance, which is a progressive thing that you've seen all the way through the Bible, from John the Baptist now to Jesus. And we are seeing a very large crowd gather together. And this brings us to Passover number three in Jesus' ministry. All these people are massing. And for the first time, Jesus is not going to go to Jerusalem. The Passover seems to occur in this time with the feeding of the 5,000. So Herod is concerned about what the people are going to do. And I would imagine Jesus also is going to be concerned. What are the people going to do now? And they're gathering together, and this is how the feeding of the 5,000 is going to be brought about. I think the evidence suggests in the Bible this is one of the most crucial points in his ministry. He's going to be tempted to be king. We know from John's gospel that the people try to force him to become a king. His ministry is now going to change completely, and it's going to change exactly uh, what, what he does. Also, this is now one year to his crucifixion, and I would imagine Jesus knows that this is his final year of his ministry. So my evidence is it's an important uh, part of the Bible here, or part of Jesus' ministry, is that this is the first time Jesus hasn't gone to Jerusalem for the Passover. He has stayed away. And it makes logical sense if you think about it. If he went to Jerusalem, I would sure there would be a riot. He doesn't even have to do anything. If anyone says, oh, we're doing this for Jesus, Jesus would be blamed. The Romans would stamp down and things could get very bad very quickly. So it makes a lot of sense. Jesus is kept into a rural area in Capernaum. And then when the crowd mass, he actually takes them into the countryside, away from towns, so there won't be any danger. So he's got this crowd, and they're massing together. He has controlled the crowd. And he's going to teach them, and he's going to tell them, I am not a military king. And uh, that's what's going to come out. We don't have the message of what he said, but we know he rejects it. Jesus is also about to carry out I think, his two most amazing miracles. There are nine what are called the nature miracles that Jesus uh, carries out. 
I would say three of them are absolutely stunning. The rest, well, yes, if I could do them, I would be amazed, but they're not as fantastic as these three. Uh, and the three major miracles for the nature miracles are feeding of the 5,000, walking on water, and calming storm. And two of them are about to occur. So we're about to see two absolutely amazing miracles. Now, I know you're probably thinking, healing, that's pretty amazing. And it is pretty amazing. But healing, you could rationalize to some extent. If you came up to me and expected me to be able to heal you, you had a problem, probably I couldn't do it. But if I was Chris Gertler, perhaps I could put my finger in my back pocket, pull out a tablet, and you would get better again. You could rationalize healing. You could even rationalize to some extent bringing someone back from the dead. If I perform CPR, I might be able to technically bring someone back from the dead. But I cannot tell you how Jesus fed 5,000 people. I cannot tell you how he walked on water. They are out of this world. Nothing, nothing like that at all would have ever been seen before. It's the only miracle as well that occurs in all four Gospels. So it is amazing. Jesus is also about to address the largest crowd he is ever reported to address. So we've got these five thousand men. This is the only point, except the feeding of the four thousand, where the sex of a crowd is actually given. And so I searched through the whole New Testament to find out how often does it give the sex of a crowd. This is the only time and the feeding of the four thousand. So what we have is a lot of men gathering together. Now, if this, the purpose of the feeding of the 4,000 was to have an amazing miracle, wouldn't it sound a little bit better if you said feeding of the 13,000, which is probably what many commentators think Jesus actually did? So why are we only being told the men, not the women and the children who are present? Well, I think there's not a small contingent here who are thinking of Jesus as a revolutionary king. We know that from John's gospel, uh, that they've tried to force him to be king. Yes, there are people who want to be healed, but there must be people who are um, possibly thinking of revolution, Jesus being the king. And one commentator put it rather beautifully. He said, could you imagine Jesus as a military leader? He would be absolutely formidable. He can heal people who are sick. He can provide food for them to feed them on the road. It would be absolutely terrifying for the authorities if Jesus was a military leader. So what you've got here is that Herod now has heard massive crowds are going to Jesus. Massive crowds of men are going to Jesus. And Herod is starting to get anxious. And Jesus knows that this is going to be very dangerous from now on. And so how he approaches will be very different. He will diffuse the situation, but it takes two occasions to diffuse it utterly. But in John 6.66, people abandon Jesus because of his preaching, not being a military leader. We also have a massive trial and temptation here. Now, no one's ever commented on this before, but when I looked at this passage, when Satan tempts Jesus in the wilderness, there are three temptations. And it strikes me as these huge temptations are about to occur. Jesus is about to turn stones into bread. That's what uh, Satan asked him to do. He is about to be offered kingship, and he's going to reject it. But also, he's going to walk on water. 
It's not too far of a stretch to think of it as being carried by angels when Satan tried to tempt him to jump off a building. But it does seem to me to the point that Jesus might have been tempted here into kingship. Now, you may be thinking, hey, Peter, really, was Jesus tempted? Well, the whole story in Matthew 4, 1 to 11, where Satan tempts Jesus, why would he have tried to tempt him with kingship if it wasn't a possibility that Jesus would be tempted? And you think of the stern rebuke Peter gets when he says, you're not going to die in Jerusalem, and he gets told, get behind me, Satan. So obviously temptation was happening. It's not mentioned as happening here, but it must have been a point in his ministry where he had to consider temptation. So we've got a massive change in his ministry occurring, massive things occurring. And from this point, what's going to happen? Jesus is going to wind his way to Capernaum, into Tyre and Sidon. So he's going north in that map across around, uh, well north of Lake Galilee, or the Sea of Galilee. And then he's going to wind down to Jerusalem where we have the last of the Passover festivals. So what can we learn from here? Well, Jesus is dealing with temptation here. He's been tempted to be a military ruler. And obviously he's rejecting it. And how he's coping with it is locations are important. He has not gone to Jerusalem. If he'd gone to Jerusalem it would have been much more difficult to control the situation. No, he's taken people into the country and he's kept them away from towns. So he's avoided the dangers of sin here. He's watching out for others. Um, You'll see next week, he's very careful to protect his disciples. And it may be one reason why the disciples are never mentioned when Jesus goes to Jerusalem in Passovers 1 and 2, because... If they were there, they may say the wrong things and cause uh, trouble and things might occur too quickly, too early in his ministry. So he does seem to look out for his disciples, but also he's guided by God. Everything is perfect timing. He sends out the twelve, bringing people to him in Capernaum, and then he moves from Capernaum into the countryside. It's a perfect timing. He's listening to God. But we can tell from this, Jesus had to go into this lion's den. He had to preach to those 5,000 men. He had to reject kingship. He didn't dodge it. He didn't run off into the countryside and try and hide. He faced this crowd. And I think this gives lessons for us in terms of temptation. How do we deal it? Location. Control the location. If an area is in somewhere in our lives that causes us to sin, avoid it. We don't go there. might not be as easy as just saying avoid it but it's something we should be on our radar. Avoid it. Control the situation. Be in touch with God. Know what God is saying. Uh, And look for God's guidance. Read the Bible. Pray. Talk with other Christians. That could easily help us in terms of temptation. Watch out for others. Jesus watches out for his disciples. He is very careful to protect them. We should be watching out for others, obviously carefully, perhaps subtly in this instance. But sometimes, as Jesus here, we have to put our head in that lion's den. And sometimes we will have to go into dangerous situations. And we may fall, we may be lifted up. But we can trust in God. His grace has saved us. And it's grace that we trust. So, I hope, a slightly different look. But I do think that's 
what is really concerning Herod. He's worried Jesus is a revolutionary and that there could be someone going to depose him. He's become concerned about Jesus. And Jesus now is concerned what Herod could do. And he is changing, his ministry is changing slightly in response. And he is going to go into the um, more Gentile areas, out of, almost out of Israel, uh, north of Galilee, and then swing back and go to Jerusalem. But he's set on the path and he's listening to God all the time and following and being obedient. I'll close with a prayer. Now to him who is able to keep us from stumbling and to present us blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen.